Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are interviewing Dr. Nikki Julian, a sex therapist, for the second time. On our previous episode, we discussed sex shame with Dr. Julian and exploring and dealing with shame on an individual level. But on this episode, we're going to get into more detail about working with shame and discussing sex and sex shame with patients. So if you haven't checked out episode 22, be sure to do that because it is foundational to sexual and reproductive health and a good foundation for this episode as well. And for our listeners who are new to the show, you can get a PDF of our show notes, including the Sex Shame show notes, by becoming a patron of the Women Centered Health Podcast. And depending on the level that you choose to subscribe at, you could also have the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests. So if you have questions, we will notify you and you can submit them. And you can find out more by going to www.patreon.com slash WCH, or you can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. So since this is our second interview with you, Nikki, can you just give a brief background about you for any new listeners? Yeah, so my name is Nikki Julian, and I am a sex therapist in Iowa City, Iowa. I own my own private practice. It is Julian and Associate Psychotherapy Services. I got my PhD from the University of Iowa, and I have specialty training in sex therapy from the Florida Sex Therapy Institute. My area of interest is sex gender identity, sexual identity, orientation, those sort of things I enjoy working with. I also work a lot with sexual trauma. Okay, great. Again, for any new listeners, can you just briefly explain what informs your perspective or your practice? Yeah, so I'm an EMDR therapist, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And I'm empower-informed, so I come from a place of um, feminist orientation where I like to empower my clients to make change in their own world. And I also am an adaptive information processing therapist, which is the theoretical background for EMDR therapy. And fancy words for meaning that in our lives, we create behaviors and find ways to survive that keep us healthy and happy. And sometimes those behaviors that we've created maybe in our younger years do not benefit us in our older years. And so they start to cause um, problems. And so we work on changing those um, behaviors, but also thoughts and beliefs about self. Great. All right. So that was a quick background. So if you want to learn more about Dr. Nikki Julian, again, listen to episode 22. All right. So let's jump right in. And again, just kind of for our new listeners, Nikki, could you just describe to our listeners again what sex shame is? Sure. I mean, sex shame is like having a understanding of yourself as being a sexual being, but having a feeling that that's not okay, or that expressing your own sexuality, whether it be through self-pleasure, whether it be in a relationship is embarrassing or feels icky in some way, like it's wrong or you shouldn't do it. So then, and I know we touched on this in the last episode, but again, I just want to talk a little bit more about this. Why do you think exploring sex shame is so important for healthcare providers? 
Well, most of us don't even realize that we have sex shame. So if I was to ask somebody, hey, do you feel like you have a lot of sexual shame? They would probably say, no, not really. But if I asked them about masturbation, they'd likely flush or become embarrassed. And the other thing is, and that's, I'm not just saying like, give me the details of your masturbation process, but the idea that someone knowing that you masturbate or someone knowing that you're enjoying sexual pleasure is wrong. And if we feel that way about ourselves, then we project that onto our clients and our patients. And that is not helpful to them because many of our patients struggle, many women and particularly older women struggle with understanding themselves as sexual beings and enjoying sexual pleasure. And so there's this, if we are going to be helping with women's health care in general, one of those things that we need to be helping with is achieving orgasm and experiencing sexual pleasure during sex and not just allowing for intercourse and not really enjoying it at all. And for some women, that's the idea of what sex should be. And if And the other thing is, if, you know, if I don't masturbate or if I don't orgasm during intercourse, then I'm not sexually healthy or I'm not, um, then there's something wrong with me and I don't deserve to orgasm at all. And so then that kind of compounds upon itself. And sex shame is created within our culture, within our religious upbringing. Most of us in the United States are Christian. And within the Christian church, you know, the idea is that, you know, sex before marriage is wrong and evil. And even within our school system here and the United States, we teach all of our school systems teach an abstinence only view of sex, which means that you know, you can't have sex until you're married. And the only way to have safe sex is to not have sex at all. And we're not teaching that with the idea of like, of course, you're going to have these feelings. You're going to experience desire because you have hormones running through your brain. So masturbation is an option. We don't give that masturbation as an option in our schools. We don't even talk about it. It's a no-no subject because so many religious views are that masturbation is evil or wrong or spilling of the seed onto the ground and, I don't know, offending a higher powder in some way. So all of those things kind of build up into our unconscious, whether we're aware of it or not. So we have to reflect on our own selves and look at our own upbringing. The idea is what our parents talked to us about or didn't talk to us because not talking to us informs our shame as much as saying don't do that. So understanding ourselves and our own upbringing and how sex has been taught to us and how we've come to conceptualize our own sexual energy and pleasure so that we don't project that onto our clients. And then we're able to ask things like, when's the last time, not only when's the last time were you sexually active, but when's the last time you achieved an orgasm and how did you achieve that orgasm and did you find that was pleasurable? And are you achieving an orgasm every time you're having sex or almost every time you're having sex? And what does that look like for you? And do you feel like you have any issues with that? So, and also providing for the opportunity to educate women on how to achieve orgasm because most women can't achieve orgasm through sexual penetration only. And if we have shame and we have a buildup of my own sexual pleasure is embarrassing to me, then we're not able to ask our clients about their sexual pleasure and about their masturbation practices or or their orgasm habits. We just say like, are you satisfied with your sex life? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I am. I have sex. And then we move on without kind of getting the details that really do help us identify issues with our clients. 
And what are some questions that providers can just ask themselves that would maybe help them understand if they have shame or not? I know that you had mentioned like in the last podcast, like, you know, ask yourself, do you have someone that you talk to sex about? Like you had some questions along that line that even when I listened to those, I was like, oh, I have more shame than I thought I did. Yes, I think asking your starting with that, you know, asking yourself, like, who do I talk to sex about? And is there ever a time where I'm afraid to or embarrassed to or I want to talk about it, but I am not comfortable with it? So asking yourself that. The other thing is like understanding your own pleasure. So like when's the last time I achieved an orgasm and how did I achieve that? And do I have any icky feelings when I think about that? Would I tell somebody like, hey, I masturbated and it was great. It worked out really well for me. Or would I never in a million years admit that to my partner or anybody else? So really like how do you talk about sex with your sexual partner is really important because we're having sex with our sexual partner. But are we willing to talk about that? sex? Are we willing to say like, that doesn't feel good? This does feel good. Are we willing to give that information? And if you're not having conversation with your sexual partner, then you're probably experiencing shame because there's a reason you're not willing to talk about sex with your sexual partner. So asking yourself first and foremost, like, how do I communicate with my sexual partner? And am I willing to communicate with my sexual partner and tell them what feels good and what doesn't feel good, what I would like them to do more of? That is an excellent way to identify sexual shame, because if we're not saying like, could you go faster? Or could you slow down? Or would you touch me here? Or would you touch me there? With the person who's actually involved in touching our body, then that's a deep-rooted shame because you're already having sex with that person. And it's interesting in our culture that it's much easier to just have sex with somebody than it is to talk about sex with somebody. So starting with our own sexual partners and then moving out into our social circles, like how would I talk to my best friend or my closest acquaintance about that, about their own sex and my own sex? And would I be willing to do that? Yes or no. And if no, why not? You know, because I mean, there may be a good why. It may be like, oh, I don't feel like it's appropriate or they're my best friend I know is conservative and I don't think she would be comfortable talking about it or he would be comfortable talking about it or my partner doesn't want me to share intimate details of our relationship. But then there are things that maybe should be questioned and explored further. Like, why am I not willing to talk about that? (laughs) Why does it feel icky to me? Why does it feel embarrassing? Why is it hard for me to talk about or even get out? And then the other, you know, as we get older in life and most of us start to have children to think about, like, how do we talk to our children about sex? How do we talk to our children about their own bodies? Are we saying it's not okay to touch yourself there? Are we saying not to masturbate? Or are we calling it a vulva or a vagina? Are we calling it a penis? Or are we saying things like no-no spots or wee-wees? Are we using pet names to describe a physical anatomy? (laughs) Because that informs shame as well. So understanding ourselves is reflecting on our own lives and how we communicate about our own sex, how we communicate about our partner's sex, and then how we communicate about the sex of the people around us, including our children and our children's desire to self-explore and to be a part of their own physical body through touching themselves. Perfect. Thank you. And I think that makes a good foundation for us to move forward with our next question. You kind of hit on these just previously in your response, but in your practice, how do you see sex shame in your clients' lives? Like, what are some common ways that you see that? 
So I think that sex shame presents differently in men than it does women. So let's talk first about how it often, not always, but how it often presents in women. And how it often presents in women is that a woman will go to a provider, a medical provider that does talk to them about sex and their own sexual pleasure. And the provider will find out something like they've never had an orgasm in their entire life or they don't enjoy sex at all, or they're experiencing pain with sex, or they're experiencing the inability to penetrate because, for I mean, for whatever reason, their body's tensing up, or but they're experiencing some sort of physical disruption in the sexual process. And they come to my office, and the more we start to talk about it, the more clearly I understand that it is because there is one, lack of education, Most of the women who come into my office do not masturbate. They know they have a clitoris. They don't know. They've never touched it. They've never seen it. They've never looked at it. They know that sex is intercourse, but they don't see sex as anything other than intercourse. And they don't understand how to pleasure themselves at all. Like there's just a complete lack of awareness of how to create one's own sexual pleasure. And most of the time, these women are older. The other way that it comes into my office is that maybe they're able to masturbate. Women are able to masturbate and experience sexual pleasure on their own, but they're not able to experience an orgasm in front of their partner because of their own views on themselves or because they're not willing to share with their partner how they experience sexual pleasure because of shame. Interesting. So what about for men then? Well, for men, sex shame comes in usually after compulsive behaviors. So excessive watching of porn and excessive masturbation or cheating, whether that be online cheating through sending pictures of of yourself and receiving pictures of other people, or whether that be actually hiring prostitutes or meeting up with people through different social media apps or dating apps or, or cheating apps. So for men, it usually happens after they've been caught in some way by their sexual partner cheating or what their partner believes is cheating through watching excessive porn, which just to clarify, I don't think is cheating, but is not my place to say in somebody else's relationship that needs to be negotiated between them. Just to clarify, so you're saying that men typically, that shame is manifested when they do those behaviors or just when they get caught? I'm saying that's how their shame is presented. So okay. it, shame isn't manifested through those behaviors at all. It's the lack of willingness to talk to your sexual partner about your need for sexual pleasure or what you find to be erotic, desirable, what your fantasy life is. So n- omitting that from your sexual partner relationship and looking for that outside of that relationship because something's keeping you from talking to your partner about it. And that's something that's keeping you from talking to your partner about it is shame. So that's what I'm saying. Okay. That makes sense. So then the behaviors that we see are impulsive sexual activity in men and oftentimes cheating because it's easier to talk to a stranger who you're never going to see again rather than somebody who you live with and you share your life with. 
I think this is really interesting because if you look at like the larger picture of, you know, from like a systems gender level, like how men and women are communicated with about sex. And then you see the different way in which this is manifesting where women are not even touching themselves, really reserved or don't embrace the sexuality. Whereas with men, it's like as a more of a result of compulsiveness, seeking it out and like an actively trying to find it. If that may, I know that I'm not explaining that the best, but it's, I just see it's interesting that there seems to be a big difference between genders. Yeah, I think you explained that. Yeah, I think you spoke clearly. And yes, there is a big difference. And it's because the message that we that we give each person is different. Oftentimes, men are told by other men, like, hey, man, like, here's some porn, relieve yourself. It's fine. But not like, talk to your partner about your sexual pleasure and express to them what your fantasies are and live that fantasy life with your partner and talk about how that can be achieved and what your arousal level is and how often you want to have sex and negotiate between you. We don't say those things to men or women. For men, we say, here, hide in a closet and masturbate and look at this stuff because it's really hot. And for women, we say, it's really not okay to touch yourself. We start to call names to women a lot, like only sluts do that, or if you do that, then you're dirty or you're wrong or bad in some way. And we shame them by saying, if you do that, then you're wrong. If you do that, then you're bad. And we use words to say that that aren't helpful to women at all. So women shy away from their own bodies because they don't want to be gross or bad or slutty or a whore or any of those things that we often put on women especially younger women who want to have a lot of sex, which is perfectly okay. You know, that reminds me too of like when I see it a lot where, you know, your wife or your mom or what some woman in your life that maybe a man's quote unquote respects and that's not something that you would do with them is whatever your fantasies are, because that's they're a lady hear that a lot like, oh, that's not ladylike. And so they're seeking that out elsewhere from women that they don't necessarily respect. Right. Or that so no one else will ever find out that they have those thoughts or desires, which are complete. It's completely okay to have fantasy. Without fantasy, there's no achievement of orgasm. And with couples, a lot of times, the messages that we give people about sex are that the only person you should ever have desire for is your sexual partner, your current sexual partner. And if you ever think about somebody else during sex, then you are cheating and they no longer want to be with you. And that's not true at all. It's really unrealistic to say the only person that we're ever going to fantasize about is this one person and nobody else ever. That's not human. That's not, we're not able to do that. That's not achievable. And it doesn't mean that we want to have sex with somebody else if we have fantasy. And it doesn't mean that we're going to step out of our relationship if we have fantasy. And also it's very important to have fantasy because orgasm cannot be achieved without fantasy. Women in particular, if we're thinking about the dishes or the peanut butter knife on the counter, then we're not going to be able to have an orgasm at all. So we have to have something to replace that inside of our brain. And that's something that we need is fantasy, is erotic fantasy, sexual pleasure, whether that be a past experience or a dreamed experience. And that is not wrong, bad at all. It's very healthy and it's very normal to have those thoughts, but we don't normalize that for women in our culture. We we shame that and we tell people how bad that is. The other thing is, is 
relationships are changing. I'm seeing a huge trend towards polyamory or open relationships where people are inviting their partners to have another sexual partner and defining what that means. And as providers, we need to be willing to hear about that experience and to talk about that experience without shaming by saying things like, oh, well, I don't understand how you do that or are you really okay with your partner sleeping with somebody else? Rather than saying things like that, you know, asking how that manifests for them, like, okay, well, let's talk about your pleasure through that. Let's talk about how you're getting your sexual needs met. Do you have any concerns in this? And they may say like, no, I don't have any concerns at all. And we don't need to put our own biases and our own beliefs on somebody else's relationship. So being open to other kinds of sex, other than the kinds of sex that we're going to engage in, or we choose to engage in. And that just because we don't choose to engage in that doesn't mean that it's wrong, bad, or immoral, or any of those things. It's just how somebody else chooses to express their own sexuality. And I just want to back up a little bit. I mean, so obviously when women come to you, it's kind of different when they come to a provider, like their general doctor versus a therapist in which they're like specifically working on this sexual problem. So as a provider, what are some other ways that you might detect a patient dealing with sex shame? How would that manifest and maybe in some other ways? Well, I think other than vaginismus or anorgasmia or sexual pain or the yeah the inability to experience fantasy, I think it first manifests itself often as those things in a physical element. I mean, that's that's really how I get to that with clients. Another way that it could possibly manifest is when we talk about sexual assault and some women, not all women, but some women really struggle with sexual pleasure after a sexual assault. And so then we have to talk about shame. But in that context, shame is skewed a little bit because it's not only the shame that they have from organically in their life from their parents or from their own religious beliefs or from their messages they received from friends or messages they received from the school or didn't receive, but also it's compounded by the pleasure that sometimes is experienced during sexual assault. And uh, the lack of understanding that the body responds because if the body doesn't respond, then we may not survive. Like lubrication is needed for penetration. Without lubrication during penetration, not only will it be incredibly painful, but there's also the possibility of tearing the mucous membrane. And it's evolution that we have sexual pleasure during a sexual assault because our body needs to protect lubrication to keep ourselves alive. And a lot of women don't understand that. And so compounding that organic shame with an inorganic shame like a, from a sexual assault, that's another way that I end up talking to women about shame in my office. But I would say the majority of specifically sex therapy without a compounding factor like a sexual trauma or even worse, um, multiple sexual traumas or childhood sexual trauma that has lasted for an extended period of time is through pain or inability to, often it's inability to to please a male partner in some way. That's what gets women into my office is that I'm not able to experience intercourse without extreme pain. And this is messing up my partner's life, not necessarily my life. And I need help with it because I don't want my husband to cheat on me. I have to say that's the majority of women who come to me for sex therapy. 
I know that some providers had mentioned that some women have a really hard time even bringing up like pelvic floor issues like leaking or prolapse or something like that. Do you feel that sex shame or shame kind of manifests itself in that way? Like if women don't feel comfortable bringing up certain topics like leaking or? Do I, I'm sorry, do I feel like that that's also a a sexual shame issue? Yeah. Or do you kind of see that as something just sort of separate? Well, I think there's probably some overlap, right? So I think a little bit of it is separate. I think there's a lot of shame in thinking like uh, there's something wrong with me or sometimes it's that that idea like I'm too heavy or I'm too fat so, and that's why I'm leaking. That's a message that women get a lot. So I think that's a different kind of shame. But also I think that sex shame and being like I'm not willing to talk about that part of my body and I'm just going to sit here and let my doctor do their thing and I'm not going to even really be present in the room because I don't want to be a part of that part of my body. So it's that's that part of my body is something that I don't ever talk about. And that is that's the very definition of sex shame, right? So that's saying that my vagina is not something that I can talk about freely and I certainly am not going to talk about touching it. So women who won't bring up those issues certainly aren't bringing up issues about sex and sexual pleasure. So how can providers help patients work through this or deal with their sex shame? Sure. I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think the the easiest answer and the most clear answer is asking questions, not only about their sexual activity, and but also their enjoyment of that sexual activity. Because if a medical provider is saying to a patient, hey, are you achieving orgasm? Are you enjoying sex? Are you able to experience intercourse as pleasurable with their patients? Then they're going to say like, oh, well, my doctor asked this or my nurse practitioner asked me this. So it must be an okay thing to experience or that must be normal. So then that frees up that ability to talk about it because Um, healthcare providers are authority figures. And if a person in authority is asking me about my sexual pleasure, then my sexual pleasure becomes okay because somebody in authority has invited me to talk about that. What are some other important questions providers should ask? I think that starting with enjoyment of sexual pleasure, enjoyment of orgasm, depending on how that's answered, you know, is has there ever been an enjoyment? Have you ever achieved orgasm? What does that feel like? Having a patient talk about what that feels like in their body. And if it, if they're experiencing, or maybe they don't even know what an orgasm is, and they just think that intercourse is part of that to, to really spend time. I know that some providers really don't have a lot of time to spend with patients really talking about this. But I think if it's something that's addressed in every appointment, then maybe they won't say anything this time, but next time, they'll be closer to saying things. So if providers ask every time about sexual pleasure, about orgasm, about how they experience orgasm, about their satisfaction with their own sexual health and their satisfaction with their partner, and also their willingness to tell their partner how they're experiencing sexual pleasure and to invite that conversation and continue to ask people about that and be willing to talk about that in whatever way that a woman is willing to talk about that. So whether it takes them a long time to 
really even mention that they're not able to achieve orgasm. Or maybe they say something like, I don't know what an orgasm really feels like or is. Being willing to educate and express that and talk about how someone can achieve orgasm during sex. And that clitoral stimulation is really important for women to talk about. And asking specifically about that. Do you stimulate your clitoris? If a woman says like, I I think I have an orgasm, but I'm not really sure. Well, Do you provide clitoral stimulation during intercourse? For a person in authority to ask that question, like, that's okay, I can do that. That's an okay thing for me to do is what a lot of women will experience thinking. Like, I didn't didn't think that was okay. I thought that I was never supposed to touch myself. Specifically, I didn't want to make my partner feel bad. Or I, I didn't know that I could do that. Or I didn't know that it was even separate. I didn't know that I needed to provide stimulation to my clitoris during intercourse. I thought that if I didn't have an orgasm during intercourse, then I wasn't sexually mature. And so by providing that information and educating women on that, hey, it's really normal to not achieve an orgasm during intercourse only without clitoral stimulation, that opens up a whole new area for women to be able to say like, oh yeah, that, that's definitely part of my issue. I, I, I don't really enjoy it that much or it's okay, but it, it brings me closer to my partner, but it's not physically pleasurable to find ways to to make it physically pleasurable, but then also to communicate with your partner about that. So a provider could ask a question like, so have you ever talked to your partner about your own physical pleasure? And for them to say no or yes, or what does that look like? Those questions can be drawn out pretty easily. So if I was to say, tell me about your sexual pleasure, do you experience sexual pleasure during intercourse? And they say, well, yeah, of course I do. I, I really enjoy that a lot. Okay, that sounds good. Do you achieve orgasm during intercourse? Well, I, I, th- I think I do. Okay, well, do, do you ch- achieve orgasm outside of intercourse? Do you masturbate? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I guess, sometimes. Well, what does that look like? Well, that that looks like rubbing myself or touching myself in a way. Okay, do you do that also when you're having intercourse? Well, no, I I don't want to offend my partner. Oh, well, have you ever talked to your partner about how you experience sexual pleasure? Well, no, not really, maybe, is the answer. Oh, okay. Well, have you ever masturbated in front of your partner? Most people are going to say, no, I haven't. And if they say yes, just say like, great, that's great. So is your partner willing to get feedback on how to make your sexual pleasure more important as part of the whole thing? Yes. Yes, that's fine. Or maybe sometimes they even get, often get, well, my partner wants to go down on me or, or wants to have oral sex with me, but I'm afraid to do that because I'm, I'm afraid that what, if I smell bad or if I look bad or if it's hygienic. And so, providing the opportunity to say like, it's perfectly hygienic. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And vaginas do have a smell and that's not displeasurable. That's very erotic and pleasurable for many partners who have a woman as a sexual partner. That's something that that is usually quite enjoyable. And if your partner's willing to do that, I would say, give it a shot. See if you like it. See if it feels good. See if it's right for you. And if it's not, then it's okay. And if they're struggling with feeling okay in that sort of sexual pleasure, you know, offering some solutions like, well, what if you took a a bath or a shower or you washed yourself before? Would that make you feel more comfortable so that you were able to experience that? You know, providing with easy, quick solutions to say like, okay, well, it's okay to make yourself feel comfortable. One, everybody needs to feel comfortable. And two, it's okay to also engage in this sort of sexual activity. It's perfectly normal. And just for an authority figure to provide some normalization to like, hey, 
yeah, your sexual pleasure is very much important and valuable is going to help women work towards achieving orgasm and feeling um, sexual pleasure much, much more. So what if if a provider is listening and is like, y'all, I don't have time to ask those questions and get into the weeds like that. What are your thoughts or how can doctors incorporate these questions into appointments or what are your thoughts on having this on like an intake form or what are other ways this could be assessed quickly? Yes, I love that. I love that it would be on an intake form. That's awesome. I think it, that would be a great place to put that. Questions like, are you able to achieve orgasm? So a provider can look at that quickly before they go into the room. But talking to the person throughout the whole appointment would be a good idea. Some providers get really quiet during an exam and, and don't continue to talk. But talking to a patient during the entire exam puts them at ease and also allows you to get much more information out. And And I understand that some people don't want to get into the weeds, if you will, but asking somebody about orgasm and sexual pleasure would take a minimal amount of time. And if the answer is lengthy and complicated, quickly offering knowing providers, knowing mental health providers and sex therapists in your area who are comfortable and willing to talk to people about their sexual activity and providing providing them with that information quickly would be most beneficial to them, I think. So just saying like, you know, it sounds like you're needing some help exploring your own sexuality and really kind of learning your body and how to experience sex pleasure. Would you be willing to see a sex therapist? I know this person and hopefully you have some sort of relationship with them. And I think they would be a great person for you to talk to. I really encourage you to do that. Again, normalizing that it's okay to seek help from an authority figure, the provider saying like, hey, this is an option for you. Normalizing that for them will help them to get there even more. So say I'm a provider and I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna add this to my intake form. Like, I, I like this. Mm-hmm. What questions do you feel would be most critical or if you had to design an intake form, what would you put on there? I mean, most critical to sexual pleasure is orgasm. Do you achieve orgasm? Do you have pain during intercourse? So I think those are the questions that I would start with. Are you sexually active? Yes or no. Can you achieve orgasm? Yes or no. I mean, those are really easy questions to get answers to. I think if you only have room for two, do you experience pleasure during sexual activity? would be one question. And are you able to achieve orgasm without any trouble would be the next question if there were only two. Okay. So my question kind of going back, you kind of walk through how a provider might bring up the topic of sex therapy or the need for sex therapy. Just kind of curious, do you get a lot of your patients that you work with through sex therapy? Do you get them referred from a provider? Yes, I get them referred from a gynecologist. And is this usually related to like these questions that the gynecologists are asking? Or is it related to like physical manifestations of sex issues? It's almost always related to, well, I think both are physical, right? So the inability to achieve orgasm, that's a physical response. Mm -hmm. And the inability to have comfortable penetration is also a physical response. Mm -hmm. So yes, yes. (laughs) So yeah, I think that those are physical responses. And what was the other part of your question? I'm sorry. Like, do most of them come from a referral from the gynecologist or do some patients find you on their own? Some people find me on their own, but women who don't understand their own sexual pleasure find me through a gynecologist almost always. 
or pushing from their partner. But I have to say that's less than a medical doctor or a physician assistant, somebody who went in for a a yearly pelvic exam. That's how I see a lot of women with anorgasmia, vaginismus, any of those sort of things, inability to penetrate. And then I know this is like just kind of a general question and everybody is very personal, but do you kind of get a sense of how many visits you have with the typical patient regarding this issue or the improvements that you see after you have your visits with them? Sure. So sometimes I have had some clients come in who have never really experienced orgasm and it's taken about five sessions and just through like, hey, have you ever tried a vibrator? You know, I mean, just really solution focused. Let's get you to orgasm with no qualms about it. I would say within like five sessions, we usually are able to to solve the problem and move on. And then I, I don't even see those women again. Other times, and particularly when there's an issue like pain or inability to penetrate, almost always those are complicated with also relationship issues and self-image issues. And so those take a little bit longer because, I mean, sexual issues are often a physical manifestation of emotional distress. And so we get into kind of resolving that emotional distress as well. So sometimes those take a little bit longer. And does insurance usually pay for your services for sure. most women? Or Okay, awesome. Yeah, of course. Good. Yeah, because it's an emotional distress. So usually there's some sort of diagnosis. And, you know, sexual dysfunction is a DSM diagnosis, which is a mental health diagnosis. So although anorgasmia is no longer a sexual dysfunction, there is female sexual dysfunction. And then there's distress caused by sexual dysfunction. So we can say whatever the issue may be, whether it be a depression issue, anxiety issue, that sort of thing, providing that sort of code. For billing with a clarification code of sexual dysfunction. So yeah, absolutely. I've never had insurance companies say like, no, I'm not going to pay for this. Good. Good. Yeah. So you previously mentioned that you work with clients who have dealt with sexual trauma. So for you, what does trauma-informed care look like and why is it so important in your practice? I think trauma-informed care looks like understanding the impact that trauma has on mental health and also how that manifests physically. So I think understanding adverse childhood experience research, where there's a direct correlation between how much childhood trauma is experienced and physical illness, such as fibromyalgia, chronic pain issues, asthma. I mean, there's several medical issues that are directly related to childhood trauma. So as a provider, I think it's really important to have an understanding of how trauma manifests itself physically, that that's very important so that you can ask those questions. And particularly when you have a patient coming in and saying, hey, I have these things going on. And then when you say, are you able to also achieve sexual pleasure? And you also are aware that that may be complicated by a traumatic sexual experience, or you can also look for that deer in the headlights, ice cold look that you get from people who have experienced a severe sexual trauma or sexual trauma at all. All sexual trauma is severe and aren't aren't able to move past that and may need help understanding themselves sexually beyond that trauma or after that trauma. 
So we have a whole podcast just on trauma-informed care with Allison Tinker, and she said that we need to change intake forms. And when we say, have you ever experienced it, that you should have yes, no, and maybe. Because Mm. she had mentioned that some women aren't sure if what Mm -hmm. they dealt with would qualify. I love that idea of saying yes, no, or maybe, because a lot of times a woman will think, well, I agreed to have sex with this person. I didn't agree to have anal sex with this person, and they wouldn't stop. But I agreed to have sex with this person, so was I assaulted? I I don't know if I was assaulted or not, or maybe my idea is I wasn't assaulted. Well, actually, you were assaulted. Anything somebody does to your body that you don't agree to is assault. Also, I think that that's very true. Women struggle with saying I was sexually assaulted when it's either somebody they know or somebody they care about. So maybe is a great, great way to get that information and absolutely should be on an intake form. Have I ever experienced sexual assault? Maybe even a question that says, like, have I experienced an unpleasant sexual encounter? Be a good way to get to some of that. I feel like from this episode, we need to add two more questions to our form. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. We have a form that we created that is part of our show notes. And it's just like a general one sheet intake form that could help providers. And I think that would be very helpful to ask about assault using those questions. We should add those, Stephanie. Yeah. Assault and orgasm. Yeah. I like that. We're stealing your ideas, Nikki. That's fine. (laughs) Steal away. You happen to have really good ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Not all the time. So this is a total change of pace. And this is something that I've always been personally really interested in. And so since I have you as a captive audience, I've really excited to see what your perspective is on this. So on a personal level, I've always been intrigued by religious teaching that it's abstinence only until marriage. And then on your wedding day, it's like the woman is somehow magically transformed into this sexual being. But then women just struggle with this mentally and physically. And I've heard some people call it like the Madonna whore complex. And I'm just curious if you have worked with clients who struggle with this and how you counsel them. I would say the majority of my clients who are older, I would say over the age of 40, have only experienced sex within a marriage or with only one partner, so their husband usually. So they may have had sex with their husband before marriage, but only with their husband. They've never had another partner. So how this presents in my office is usually through one of those things, anorgasmia or issues during intercourse, like the inability to achieve penetration, that sort of thing, or pain with penetration. All of those issues, that's how they present. And it's it's usually, I've had one partner, that partner has only been my husband. Also complicated within this issue is sexual pleasure, right? So when people have that sort of religious understanding of sex and sexuality, they also have the understanding that it's not okay to touch yourself. It's not okay to masturbate. And if you do masturbate, there's this idea that it's cheating on your partner. If you've left them out, you're not allowing them to experience your whole sexual self. And so then there's a lot of education about that and talking about where that message came from. And if somebody wants to continue to believe that. But the other piece of that is if somebody does believe that wholeheartedly, and that for them is their understanding of themselves and religion and being good in terms of being a good Christian and being a good woman and being, I guess, mentally, spiritually, and physically healthy, they're not going to come into my office. Or if they do come into my office, they'll come in once and they'll never come in again. Because I do talk openly about orgasm. And also, I look radical 
to them. So I very much am butchy looking and I have tattoos and I have short hair and I'm not somebody they deem as safe to talk to. So a lot of times they will come in once and then I'll never see them again. I just have always found that interesting. Can I kind of take that a little bit further? This has really nothing to do with providers per se, but taking that abstinence education to this other level. I, so I live in a smaller town in Johnson County, but our high school recently, or I guess it wasn't the high school, but some group came and spoke at the high school to parents and students about, and I think the group was called the New Drug. I don't, have you heard of this, Nikki? I have not. Okay, so I looked at that. I was like, what is this about? I don't really have kids old enough yet, but it's this group that's anti-pornography. And I know a lot of my neighbors went to this and took their daughters or their sons. And while I sort of see like there's some issues with online pornography as far as exploitation of women and things like that, it was calling online pornography a drug and that it's a problem and people need to stop looking at it. Have you dealt with this at all in your practice about this shame with pornography and or like how to deal with some of these conflicting issues in pornography? Yes, I mean, it's something that I talk about a lot. And it's complicated, right? So I think pornography can be very beneficial. I think there is a realm of pornography that does exploit women. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. And I think that that is also fading some I would say the majority of pornography does not exploit women because the majority of pornography that's readily available is amateur uploads of pornography. So people who are recording their own sexual experiences and then posting them onto pornography sites. That's the majority of porn that's readily and easily available to kids, to anybody who types in porn into the search engine. It is really available. So the good things about porn, porn can be an educational experience. Nobody really teaches us how to have sex. And it's a place where you can see how sex happens. That's great. Love it. Porn can also be uh, an arousal tool to get in the mood, get used to having arousal with your partner, moving towards orgasm, and providing a realm of fantasy. So those are all positive things. When porn becomes an issue is when somebody learns to achieve desire and arousal through porn, because then they're learning that images create arousal and desire and they're conditioning their brain just like Pavlov's dog with meat and bell meat and bell the dog begins to salivate to the the bell people begin to salivate to an image rather than an actual person and that complicates a sexual experience because when we're engaged in sex with a human being all of our senses are engaged when we're engaged in masturbation through watching porn one of our senses is engaged And that changes or conditions, I should say, conditions the brain to orgasm, to arousal through imagery and not through human beings. So from my experience, that is the issue with pornography. The other thing is when it comes to porn and kids, teenagers looking up porn, being exposed to porn, and I'm not talking about little kids being exposed by adults, that's abusive and not helpful and gross and wrong and all of those things. But when teenagers are looking for answers about sex, they often will stumble on porn 
And that's not helpful. And that can be avoided through education. So if we educated and we provided information and we were willing to say to our children, I know that you're a sexual being. I know that you want to know about this. And we were comfortable with our own sexuality and we were not shaming our children for having their sexuality, then I think porn would be much less of an issue in our society today. And that is, I believe that wholeheartedly. And I stand by that 100 percent because kids wouldn't have the need to look it up. Kids wouldn't have to learn about it through the internet. And we could also talk to our kids about, hey, these images and videos are out there. And yeah, they're they're arousing. They really create desire. And also, if you learn how to achieve orgasm and experience sexual pleasure through watching those videos, you are doing yourself an injustice. And sex with a person is much, much more enjoyable and much more satisfactory. And I would encourage you to experience sex with the person rather than watching pornography and experiencing orgasm through that way. And if we're able to say that to our child, then we're doing away with the majority of the problems that come from porn. So what about from like a provider standpoint? I mean, I know that you said what you could say, but, you know, maybe like a simple version or the best way that a provider can communicate with their patient about pornography. Do you have some suggestions? Yeah, asking. I am kind of straightforward. So, like, do you watch porn? Have you ever watched porn? Do you achieve orgasm through porn? For women, that's going to be a little bit different a lot of times than through me- than men. And sometimes it's saying, like, have you ever thought about watching porn for women to get a sense of normalization? I think the issues with women and men are different often. And this is one of those areas where they're a little bit different. Sometimes porn can be very helpful for women because it can normalize sexual activity so that they feel like, oh, okay, well, this is an okay thing to do or other people are doing this or this is we're doing this the right way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would also recommend like porn sites, like feminist porn sites. You know, the other thing that we haven't talked about at all is kink and kink culture and how many people are involved in that. And that's a much bigger subset of sexuality than people even talk about or think about or are sometimes aware of. So, you know, providing healthy sites for that, uh, kink.com. Let's talk about that. What is kink? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about what is kink and then maybe yeah, how providers can discuss this with or, you know, get into that with patients. Sure. So kink is BDSM, which is people who enjoy combining some sort of physical pain with sexual pleasure. And there are many different ways. I mean, there's a lot of different kink interests. So that can be latex, leather, electric play, needle play, blood play, urine play, feces play, all of those things. So as a provider, we need to educate ourselves about all the possibilities, um, being bound, using ropes, all of those things. So when our patients, if our patients ever say to us, hey, this is a thing that I'm doing and this is happening while I'm doing that, we aren't shocked. And we're able to say like, okay, and help them provide a solution to solving whatever issue they're having. Or if you move your body this way, or if you touch yourself this way, or if you did this, or if you provided lubrication during that process, then it wouldn't be as painful, or then it would be even more enjoyable. Or I think that providers have the responsibility to educate themselves. And they can do that through watching porn. 
that would be a really good way to do that. Honestly, when I went through the Florida Sex Therapy Institute, a majority of the time I watched a lot of porn to educate myself on many different realms of how sex works and how people enjoy sex. And there is a very healthy for all people involved in it. And it's kink.com. Kink.com has a lot of videos about different forms of kink. And everybody who is on that website and who is participating in those things want to be participating in those things. They're not being forced. They're, it's something they sought out. It's something that they're looking for. And many people do enjoy that. And to, for us as providers, it's our responsibility to have an understanding that, hey, this is an okay thing for people to do. And it's an okay thing for people to enjoy, even if it's something that I wouldn't enjoy. Just like I may be a lesbian and not want to have sex with a man, or I may be gay man and never have sex with women, or I may be heterosexual and only want to have sex with my husband. How we define our sex and how we embody our sex and who we have sex with is individualized and we shouldn't put our views on anybody else. Two things. One, I could see as a provider, depending on like your fluency in this stuff, we'll say, I could see where you would potentially see your shame coming out quite quickly if someone says that they participate in BDSM or what kind of stuff they specifically do. So I could see that being a a quick manifestation of self-shame. So in dealing with that, that's why it's really important to watch those videos and to talk to other people about that. Because Mm -hmm. the more we talk about it, just like in the last episode where I said, like, I make my students often say things like, penis and vagina on camera because my class is online or I make them say them in class, you need to say the things that bring you shame repetitively so that you get that so you don't flush or you don't get embarrassed or you don't say, I don't want to talk to you about that. Or you don't walk out of the room quickly and pretend you never even heard the question, all of those things. So this is also sidetracking, but I went to, a, it's called the Quad S Conference. It's, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like the Scientific Study of Sexuality. It's just like a sexuality studies yeah. conference. It's an amazing conference, like totally mind-blowing conference. And I went to one and they had a whole section or like part of a day that was just about BDSM and like people doing different research within the BDSM and what that looks like, consent and stuff like that. And one mm-hmm. of them, it was really interesting, probably likely a qualitative study that they did, the interview people who participate in BDSM and they looked also at their previous childhood trauma or any type of trauma that they experienced in their lives and they talked about how in some ways that BDSM was almost a way for them to I don't know what cope is the right word but like work through the trauma that they experience. And so it's interesting to put this healing lens that BDSM could be healing for some people. Right. It's empowering because they're putting themselves, they're choosing that for themselves and it feels very empowering and they're taking the power of their own sexual pleasure back. And that can be extremely healthy. There's a lot, a lot of childhood sexual abuse survivors who are heavily involved in kink and BDSM. So you had mentioned kink.com. Are there any other resources or places that providers can go to help deal with sex shame or find resources for their patients? Sex Smart Films is my go-to site. And it is actually pretty inexpensive. And that is helpful to providers because it's a lot of pornography, but it's not billed as pornography. It's billed as education. And so that there's also providers talking about educational stuff. It's really based on like Masters and Johnson's models of sexuality, sexual arousal, all of those things. So any topic, there's stuff on BDSM, there's stuff on orgasm, there's stuff, I mean, there's 
everything that you can think about in sex is in that Sex Smart Films website. Was it Sex Smart or Sex Smart? No, Sex Smart. Smart with an S. So Sex Smart. Okay. Yes. Sex Smart Films. And it is something you have to subscribe to. You can do a month. And I think a month subscription is like $6 or something. It's really inexpensive. I often send my clients to that website to look at things when they're experiencing difficulty in relationship. Interesting. Yeah. Any Anything else? Any other resources you like? Nope, that is the best, I think, resource to go to. Okay. The other thing, it, like feminist porn and, and just Googling like feminist porn sites, there's so many out there, is another good resource to look at. But my preference is sex smart films. Do you have a preferable feminist porn website? I don't. No, I really don't. Yeah. I used to know a couple of by name and I have forgotten them. So, Nikki, anything else you want us to ask you? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I loved all of this again. Yes, Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Thank you for being on our podcast twice. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? I don't. I can't think of anything at least. But thank you for having me. Yes, and thanks again for another wonderful recording. I'm excited. No problem. Happy to do it. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 